Boy, hasn't this hot weather been amazing? Oh, love it. I wish it would go up like five more degrees. Just keep... Mm. Oh, I'm in such a good mood. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20. And this morning as we're studying through Revelation, we come to this interesting passage that has been a subject of debate among Christians for millennia. Revelation 20, 1 through 10. And as I read the text, though, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. What's the main point of this passage? Let me read it. Revelation 20, 1-10. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and holding his, in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city He loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, what is the central message of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10? There's a lot being talked about in this passage, but, but what is sort of the primary uh, communication from God that this text would give us? Isn't it that Satan is going down? That seems to me to be the main point. That the great enemy of our souls, that the evil one himself, has a time stamp on his forehead, an expiration date given to him by God, and that there will come a day when God and His sovereignty will overthrow our great enemy. And, and the one who goes around prowling like a roaring lion will finally be put on the wall and be done with, and that God will reign supreme. It's about the victory of Jesus over our enemy. Now, I say that because uh, some of you may know that Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10, is one of those passages in the Bible that Bible-believing Christians have dis disagreed about and debated about for a, a long time. Specifically, that phrase, the th you see that phrase, a thousand years. You know, Satan is in prison for a thousand years. The saints reign for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, this thousand years is sort of referred to in Christian theological jargon as the millennium. So whenever you hear Christians arguing or discussing or questioning about the millennium, this is the text that they're talking about. 
And often we, you know, Christians come at this text and, and we're asking the question, what is the millennium? Is it a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years? Is it something that happens now? Is it something that happens later? And the thing I want to point out to you is I don't think that's the main point of this passage. I think the main point is the defeat of God's enemies. Now, the millennium is an interesting question and it's something we should think about and talk about. But, but if I go away from this passage just thinking about you know the, my mental timeline of how the end times will unfold, and I don't go away from this passage encouraged and confident and with a fresh desire to be faithful to Christ no matter what because I know that my enemy is a loser and he's already going down, and if I don't go away with a desire to, to be faithful to Christ and to, to have hope that God has already won in Jesus and that He's going to win forever, then I think... I've missed the point of the passage. That seems to be, to me, the main thrust of this passage. I mean, look at the text again. Just look with me at how the focus is on the defeat of the enemy. I mean, before we even get to Revelation chapter 20, where have we been in Revelation? Starting in chapter 17, we have been focusing on the, the agents of evil in Revelation, one by one, coming under the judgment of God. So it started in chapter 17 and 18 with, if you were here last couple Sundays, the downfall of the... The false, or rather, of Babylon and the great, the great prostitute. That the evil world system, the idolatrous system, will be destroyed someday. And then we last Sunday looked at the next two agents of evil, the beast and the false prophet. Uh, Pastor Chris preached on this. Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. It says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Then Revelation 19:20, The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed miraculous signs. And then it says at the end of that verse, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, into hell forever. So the prostitute goes down. The beast goes down. The false prophet goes down. And so we're expecting, now when is the great dragon, Satan himself, the devil, going down? And, and it comes now in this passage. So the whole context points us to the systematic and successive defeats of God's enemies at, at the end under God's judgment. Look at the text itself. Notice the theme of God's judgment on Satan in chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 10 falls into three nice panels, sort of, sort of three acts. The first is verses 1 to 3. And what happens there? Satan's thrown in jail. He's nabbed, chained, imprisoned, sealed, locked. You know, he's, he's bound up. So there, God has him under control. And then verses 4 through 6 is the next panel. And here, while Satan is defeated, the saints are reigning in victory. But and notice though, specifically look at verse 4. It says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So again, the emphasis here is upon the upset of Satan's tactics. You know, you could, from a worldly perspective, say, when was the devil most triumphant? Well, it's when he could actually kill people who worship Jesus. And yet, look, the very martyrs who've been killed for the name of Christ are suddenly reigning when Satan goes down. So even his moment of most apparent victory turns out to be thrown back in his face. And those who were martyred are reigning. 
Those who paid the ultimate price for their faith receive a, a gigantic reward as he's in prison. So his schemes come to nothing. All of his work to destroy God's people is, is destroyed. And then you get the final panel, verses 7 to 10. And here we see the ultimate end. His imprisonment is sort of a penul- penultimate destruction and, and defeat. But verses 7 to 10, it says ultimate defeat and destruction. And so Satan is released from prison. Verse 7, he instantly violates his probation. I mean, who's surprised at that? And he, he gets all the armies together and he gathers the whole world together to try to make a final global assault to extinguish the church forever. And it's then that God intervenes and destroys Satan. And then verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, and I love these words, forever and ever. Hallelujah! You know? Our enemy... Done. The, the, the great accuser, the, the one who, who tempts and harasses us and, and, and just embarrasses us the way we give in to his temptations again and again and have to come back to Christ and say, I'm so sorry. You know, and it, it just finally, he's going to be done. It's going to be awesome. And so I think more than anything else, this passage should give us confidence, hope, assurance, courage to keep following Jesus. No matter how fierce the test may be, no matter how pressing and, and, and tempting the, the allurements to sin may be, we have to just keep pushing them aside as His followers and through His power stay faithful to Christ. That seems to me to be the, the main thrust of this text, the main thing we should take away from it. Yeah, so what about those thousand years though? <laughs> you know? Okay, so that's the main point, but the thousand years thing is interesting. Uh, and this is, of course, where Christians have... Debated. What is this thousand years period talking about? Um, and, and generally speaking, you could say that, that there are two overarching ways that Christians have understood this passage in terms of how it fits in with history and what God's doing in the world. There, there's sort of two major schools of thought in interpreting the millennium, the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. One school of thought says that Jesus comes back first and then the millennium of Revelation 20 takes place. So this is, this is a school of thought called premillennialism. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Pre means before. Jesus comes back before, pre, the millennium described here in Revelation chapter 20. And underneath this umbrella, there are lots of sub-schools. Underneath this genus, there are different species uh, there's dispensational premillennialism. If you've read the Left Behind series, that's dispensational premillennialism. There's some more of a classic premillennialism. There's some premillennialists who believe the thousand years is going to be a literal thousand years. There's some premillennialists who believe it's just kind of a figure of speech for a long period of time. So there's lots of flavors and nuances, as often is the case in schools of thought. You can't sort of paint it with a broad brush. But, but generally speaking, that's one view that looks at this this thing that Satan's defeat in Revelation 20 will take place after Jesus returns. The second school of thought, you can probably guess what it is, is that Jesus returns after Revelation 20. That the millennium of Revelation 20 is describing something that either is taking place or will take place before Christ returns. And so this is called post-millennialism. Okay? Jesus returns post or after Christ. Uh, or, or, yeah, Jesus returns after this millennial period. 
And so, uh, this, so this is the two general views. And of course, under postmillennialism, there's a lot of subviews. There's something called sort of historic postmillennialism. There's amillennialism. There's different nuances and, and emphases in there. And, and, and so which is it? You know, what is Revelation 20 about? Is it about something in the future after Jesus returns, something before he returns? And I just have to say, it's, it's, this is a question that Christians have debated. This is a question that the giant minds of church history have disagreed about and debated. There isn't some sort of consensus. I mean, there's lots of different views on this. That doesn't mean it's just kind of, well, pick what you want. I mean, there is, it's God's word. We have to know what his truth says. But I'm just saying the Christians have debated what that truth is. Uh, when you look at the history of the pastors who have been, I was sort of going back thinking of the different senior pastors who've been here at South Shore Baptist Church, there's been a difference of viewpoints among those pastors, which is kind of interesting. When you look at the pastors who are currently serving South Shore Baptist Church, we do not agree on this matter. And when we go out to Chipotle Grill to have lunch, it's one of the things we kick around and have fun with. Um, so, uh, it, it, you know, something else I'll just point out that's kind of interesting. Our, doctrinal, our church just adopted a new doctrinal statement in December after like almost three years of study and, and review, and we adopted this new doctrinal statement, and we, we put a lot of things into the new doctrinal statement that were missing in the old one, like a clear statement about the Trinity, <laughs> justification by faith. You know, some of the basics of the Christian life, we put a lot of things in. But you know, from our old doctrinal statement, there's actually one thing we took out. Guess what it was? The view on the millennium. Our, our old doctrinal statement used to have a stance on the millennium, but we kind of said, you know, that's an important issue, but it's not an issue around which we want to define the fellowship of our congregation. So, so that's kind of where we're coming from. It's an important thing. It's an interesting thing. Uh, but, but in the end, it's not an essential thing. It's something about which Christians can disagree and still be faithful, Bible-believing Christians. So I'm kind of him and hawing here, aren't I? Well, um, what, where do I come down on this? My, let me just tell you what, what I think it is, and let me just kind of walk you through the passage from my own perspective. But I want to keep coming back to this theme that ultimately it's about the defeat of God's enemies and ultimately our enemies. That's the hope this passage gives. My current conviction, and I use that phrase specifically, my current understanding, because I'm open to learning more, is that is more of a post-millennial reading of the book of Revelation. If I had to put a, a little name tag on myself, I would call myself an amillennialist. And it's this idea that, that what Revelation 20 is describing, I believe, is it's describing the, the age of the church in which we live. That it's describing the period of time from the first to second coming of Jesus that will ultimately culminate in Jesus' defeat. That it's describing the, the victory aspect of the church in this present age. That, that the church is reigning now and ruling with Christ. Uh, so I see the thousand-year period as, as a symbolic number, like pretty much all the other numbers in Revelation have been very symbolic. And so it's a symbolic number of a long period of time, perhaps an kind of ideal period of time uh, of the reign of Christ through his church in the world today. Um, part of what leads me to that viewpoint is just the fact that as we've studied Revelation, I've seen repeated cycles in Revelation, that Revelation, the book of Revelation, if you've been studying with us for the last several months, doesn't really work as a nice, strict, tight chronology. That it, it, It's very repetitive. That There are multiple images in Revelation of the second coming. It's like, well, Jesus came, then he came again. No, 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 it's, it's repeated cycles. 
Revelation tends to take us from the resurrection to the second coming again and again, just with different emphases, different viewpoints, different metaphors, different language, trying to communicate the same thing but in different ways. Which I would point out is a very common aspect of Old Testament prophecy. That if you go back to the Old Testament and read any of the Old Testament prophets, you'll find they're very repetitive. They talk about the same kinds of things, the same hopes, the same promises, the same warnings, repeatedly, just with different angles and different uh, emphases. So, so that fact just opens me automatically to the possibility that Revelation chapter 20 is yet another description of the time from the resurrection of Jesus until His second coming. Let's look at the text more specifically, verses 20, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Uh, let's look at these three panels. Here we see in the verse, first three verses the binding of Satan. And I, I understand this to be the fact that Satan was defeated decisively at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Then when Christ rose from the dead, Satan has been bound up in a certain sense. That Satan has been defeated in a certain sense. You'll notice that it says that, that the, the angel comes down with a key to the abyss. You know, keys in Revelation are always in the hands of Christ or His, His agents. And they're always used to, to lock up and open things in this age. Uh, and, and so the key to the abyss, it, it, it reminds me of Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus says, I was dead, now I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys to death and Hades. And I really think that the abyss and death and Hades, if not synonymous, are very closely related in Revelation. They're very similar, referring to a similar kind of thing. So here's Jesus, I think, in his victory, the effect of his resurrection is that Satan has been conquered. It kind of reminds me of uh, in the Gospels when Jesus was driving out demons and people were questioning him about driving out demons. He says, look, first you've got to tie up the strong man before you can plunder his house. In other words, first someone has to defeat Satan before you can free people who are under his bondage. And it was his way of saying, I've tied up the strong man. And so Jesus has defeated and tied up Satan at the cross. And there's a victory that's already taken place. In other words, I think verses 1 to 3 are emphasizing the already aspect of Jesus' victory. You know, Jesus' victory is already and not yet. He's already the victor, but he's not yet totally put all of his enemies down. Satan is already defeated, but he's not yet totally destroyed. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet been consummated in all of its fullness. And so I think these verses are about that already aspect of the kingdom of God. Now, I, I can hear sort of the premillennial objections in my ear. Uh, and and the, the main premillennial objection, which is a good objection, by the way, goes like this. Well, if Jesus put Satan in prison at his death and resurrection, he probably better go back and check the prison cell because it appears that, G that Satan has escaped. It appears he is free and loose in the world. That, that's a really good objection, I think. Uh, he's out there. He, he is at work in the world. We know that from our own experience as Christians. We also know that from the Bible. It says in the Bible that Satan today prowls around like a roaring lion. He's loose. It says today that he's the prince of the power of the air uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and so you say, how can he be loose and prowling and reigning, but at the same time, you're also telling me that he's in an abyss. Check this out. He's seized, bound, thrown in, locked, sealed. Seems pretty thorough. <laughs> 
Uh, so how can it be both if, if this really did happen at the resurrection? And I guess I, my, my response to that first would be to acknowledge that it is a really good objection. And I think that's why, that's why this, this issue is so debatable because there's good arguments both ways. But I guess my response would be I, I would caution against pressing the imagery to say more than it's intended to say. You know? So for instance, let me give you another example from another context. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. It says that Jesus, uh, in his resurrection, it says that he disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Using the same logic, you could say, well, Colossians 2 can't be true because clearly Satan is still armed and dangerous. Colossians 2 can't be true because if he made a public spectacle of him, why did people still follow him? And so that must not have taken place. In other words, I think it's, it's just trying to squeeze too much out of the imagery than it was intended to communicate. Not only that, but look again at, at what it says. I think the text itself tells us what it means. So rather than coming to the imagery of, of binding and imprisonment and saying, well, I think that means Satan is completely shut off for a while, rather than us foisting our own understanding of it let's let the text tell us what it means by satan's imprisonment and it tells us right there in verse three he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him in what sense to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore so in a particular sense he's imprisoned him or look down at verse seven i think we even get more input it says when the thousand years are over satan will be released from his prison he will go out to deceive the nations there's that phrase again in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in what sense to deceive them? To gather them for battle against the church and against Christ. So in other words, I think that his imprisonment is not an absolute imprisonment, but it's in the sense that he can no longer put all the nations of the world under a blanket of darkness that makes them all hostile to Christ. In other words, he doesn't do now what he did in the Old Testament times. In the Old Testament... God's people were Israel, just one nation, one little people. The whole rest of the world was in the darkness of idolatry. You know, from the, from the Native Americans in North America to the, the Mayans to my ancestors, you know, the Germans and, and the British, you know, and the Celtics. I mean, wherever you went in the world was the darkness of idolatry, of idol worship. And there's just one, you know, sort of shining light people who knew the true God. And the whole world was, was kind of opposed to Israel. I mean, the nations were always coming at Israel. It was only God's power that kept that little candle alive. But with the coming of Jesus, Satan has been wrapped in prison. And now he can no longer deceive the nations in that way. Now the gospel is going to the nations. Now the gospel of Jesus is going to all of these people. My German ancestors and my Norwegian ancestors, these, you know, pagan Odin worshiping peoples, can have heard about Jesus. That, that the good news of Christ is going to the world. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. The nations are no longer deceived, they're now being discipled. And, and so I see this binding of Satan in the sense that it opens the gospel era so that the gospel can go forward. That's why, despite present circumstances, I have confidence for the success of the gospel in Saudi Arabia. I believe the church in God's time will be established in Iraq and Iran 
and North Korea. I don't know how, <laughs> except nothing can stop the gospel. In God's power and God's time, it'll be accomplished. That's why I even have confidence for the South Shore of Boston. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> I really do, though. I have confidence for the South Shore of Boston. Not because we have really great, tricky plans as a church. We're not that smart, okay? We're not that well organized. I just have confidence that God's gospel cannot be stopped. And, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church at this time. And so we're going out there and we're proclaiming that gospel of Jesus in confidence, not in ourselves, but that God is sending the gospel to the ends of the world, including this part of the world, because Satan is bound in that particular sense. That wonderful gospel. And you know the, you know the basic gospel message, don't you? The simple gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and raised for our sins so that whoever puts their faith in Christ can be forgiven. I love that gospel message. You know? I think sometimes we think we have to get our lives all perfect for God before we can be saved. That's not the case. Christ has done the work for us. Um, last, not, not last Sunday, but about three or four Sundays ago, I was in the foyer talking to someone and a guy came up and introduced himself, and it was clear that he wasn't, he wasn't part of our church. He was not a regular church attender, he made clear, and he was here with some family. And, uh, and he said this phrase that I've actually heard several times. He said, well, you know, the, uh, the roof didn't cave in on me when I came in. <laughs> and I just said to him, you know what? We only allow sinners in this church. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, oh, well, I, I, I guess... Uh, <laughs> I guess I can come here then. And I was like, oh. right? But, but I think sometimes we think the gospel is clean up your act, get sober and clean, stop swearing, uh, you, know, you know, clean up all the problems in your life, get your marriage together, get your kids together, get it all together, and once it's all perfect, then come and present your resume to God at church, and if it's good enough, then you can be one of the holy roller peoples. It's just the opposite. You know, that's, that was what the Pharisees did in the, in the New Testament. The gospel is that the, the, the dirty sinners like me, with dirty hands, dirty hearts, dirty minds, dirty lives, can bring them to the cleansing blood of Jesus and say, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. You know, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses me, not my own personal rehabilitation and my own personal efforts at restoration. That's the gospel. That's what I need. I, I don't need someone to give me a checklist because I'm going to fail it. I've tried the checklist thing my whole life. never works. Even as a Christian, sometimes I go back to it. It doesn't work. I come back to the cross. I need a Savior, not, not a to-do list. And so this is the gospel, and I have confidence for the gospel because Satan is in the hole in the sense that he cannot deceive the nations. At least that's how I read the text. Just moving on quickly here. The next segment, verses 4 to 6, shows thrones, people reigning on thrones, souls, I interpret this to be that during the church age, this is a picture of saints or Christians who have died and who are now reigning in heaven with God. That after believers die, they go to be with the Lord in heaven. The Scripture is very clear that at our death, we're present with the Lord. We're conscious with Him. Um, you know, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and so here's that paradise reign of the saints. Notice that they're on thrones. You look up the word thrones in the book of Revelation, and almost every instance it's referring to heavenly thrones. 
All right, so I take that to be the saints in heaven. Look what it says in verse 4. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. So I think this is, cl- this is a reference to the, especially martyrs. It's a reference to faithful Christians, particularly exemplified by martyrs who have been faithful to the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. And so we have victory in heaven. Even those Christians who give their lives for the gospel who seem to be defeated at that moment of their death, are actually translated into victory with Christ, reigning with Him in the heavenly realms. They're living and reigning with Christ. And so we have confidence. What a good word this would have been to those first century Christians who were being stamped out by Rome. Christians who were being threatened with martyrdom because they didn't worship Caesar. What an encouraging word to know, hey, even if you have to give your life for the gospel, you'll reign with Christ. So... Go for it. It's totally worth it. Now, I can hear the premillennial objection to this, and it's a good objection. Uh, the premillennial objection is, uh, this doesn't look like people going to heaven. This looks like resurrection, like people physically coming back to life, like the resurrection. And nobody in any theological system I'm aware of within orthodoxy believes that resurrections happen before Jesus returns. And so this has to be something in the future. I mean, look, it says that there is... The first resurrection, verse 5. It says in verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so I think this is a really good sort of premillennial point. It seems to be saying that some people are raised from the dead, literally, at the end of the thousand years, and some people are raised from the dead, literally, at the beginning of the thousand years. Why should we take that to be different kinds of resurrections? They seem both to be raised. And I guess I would say, at least I think, that's probably the very strongest of all the premillennial arguments. There's a lot of good arguments, but that one is really challenging to deal with. Uh, It's very convincing, I think, very persuasive. Um, So how do I respond to it? Well, I guess I would just suggest that perhaps the language of first and second in Revelation, first resurrection, second resurrection, first death, second death, that kind of language, not only indicates, indicates sequence, but it also indicates contrast and difference. So, for instance, look at Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So it's not just that there's a new heavens and a new earth, but it's a different kind of heavens and different kinds of earth. God is doing something different and new. Or look back at chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. Now, what's the second death referring to? That's referring to being, people being thrown into hell at the last day. But it's a different kind of death because from what we can tell, people are resurrected, they're conscious, they're thrown into hell bodily where, where they're under the wrath of God forever. Which is, We'll get to that next Sunday. It's a very difficult, challenging passage. But again, the point is the second death is a different kind of death than the first death. And so could it be that the first resurrection, using that first language again, is a different kind of resurrection than the second one? The second one is a literal physical one, and the first one is a more spiritual one in heaven with Christ. But regardless of how do I understand it, what's the point that we should take away from verses 4 to 6? Here's the pastoral application for you. It's totally worth it. It is so worth it to live for Jesus No matter what you think you're sacrificing for Christ, you really aren't sacrificing anything. 
It is so worth it. Even if you had to give your life for the gospel, it's totally worth it. That there's going to be a victory and there's going to be reigning with Christ. I think sometimes as Christians, you know, you can get discouraged. You can be like, is this worth it? You know, living this different life. Everyone thinks I'm like some kind of prude or some kind of holy roller. Why don't I do all the things everyone else does? I'm leading this life that's trying to honor the Lord that's so out of step. I keep getting all this flack from my family. The guy at work just will not let up. You know, is this worth it? Is it worth it? And I think no matter what you believe about the millennium, I think Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 to 6 says, it's worth it. It's worth it. Blessed are those who take part in this first resurrection, whatever it is, because you don't have to face the second death. That's worth more than anything that this world can offer you to have eternal life with Christ. It's totally worth it. And then just moving on, the final scene, just to wrap this up, verses 7 to 10. Here we have the final battle. Satan's let loose out of prison. Gathers everybody together. And and I, I believe this is describing the time just before the return of Jesus when the gospel has been preached to all the nations. And then as it says in Matthew, then the end shall come. This is describing the, the final period of apostasy after the gospel has gone out into all the world and all of God's people are gathered in. There will be a final short period where Satan will be let loose to deceive the whole world again and he will quickly launch a plan to uh, make the church extinct. He'll try to, to kill all those who do not worship him. There will be a great delusion that will come over the world. Uh, I believe that will be the time of the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness and all that bad stuff is coming. And the world will go through a very dark period right before the coming of Christ. What I want to point out here, though, is that it's interesting. I think we should note that this final battle between Satan and God's people, between Satan and Jesus, has already been talked about other times in the book of Revelation. Look at that phrase. Look at verse 8 of chapter 20. Satan deceives the nations, so there'll be sort of a massive global deception at the very end. And the purpose is to gather them for battle. Okay? To gather them together for battle. That same phrase is used back in chapter 16. Go back to Revelation 16. Back to the bold judgments. Chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out from the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. So there's these, this great deception is taking place through miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world. And here's the phrase, to gather them for battle. Same exact phrase on the great day of God Almighty. And then notice the same phrase occurs again in chapter 19, verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together, same Greek verb, to make war. There's that same Greek noun against the rider on his horse and his army. So are there three battles of Armageddon? You know, how many are there? How many, how many times does this final showdown have to happen? I think it's just the same battle. Again, just being told in a repeated sort of cyclical way looking at it from different vantage points, from different angles. One time it's the, you know, chapter 16, next chapter 19, then chapter 20. 
So it's just the same battle told from different perspectives again and again when, when Satan will come again uh, to, to sort of give his, his, final, his final attack, uh, his, his swan song. In fact, I've entitled this sermon, Satan's Swan Song. There it is. There's his swan song. But then he's, the fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And then verse 10 of chapter 20. Uh, I don't care what your millennial view is. Can we just read verse 10 with great joy in our hearts? You know, where it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. To think that, that the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy will finally himself be destroyed. To think that the accuser of our brethren will finally be shut up and no more accusations. To think that the ancient serpent will finally have his head crushed under the, the heel of Eve's offspring. To finally see the father of lives have the light of truth shined upon him. To see our enemy defeated. To see the roaring lion shot and mounted on a wall. To see the prince of the power of the air come crashing down in a fiery combustion. Hallelujah. God's enemy will be destroyed and we'll be set free. Praise God. So I think, I think the question of application that this text raises for us, where do you stand with Christ? Where do you stand with Jesus? You know, There is no Switzerland in the spiritual war. Okay, It's either with Christ or with Satan. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't, you know, I don't really believe in Jesus and I definitely don't believe in the devil. You know what the devil says to that? He says, fine by me. Go ahead, don't believe in me. Great, just do your thing. You know, to be under the power of the devil, you don't have to wear black lipstick and pentagrams and listen to Scandinavian black death metal. Okay? That's, that's not the only way to be under the power of the evil one. To be under the power of the devil, you just have to, to say, hey, I just want to do it my way. I, I, don't, I don't believe in any of this. I just want everyone to leave me alone. I'm just going to live my life and do my thing, make myself happy. Guess what? You are fully under the sway of the evil one at that point. Isn't that what he's all about? Is rebellion against God, whatever form it takes. You know, I, I was, we were, last night we were reading a little book at, at dinner. Uh, we have a little book where we write down all the funny things our kids say. Sometimes our kids are like, dig it out, I want to read it again. So we dug it out and... We read this funny one that my, uh, my youngest son said when he was like two or three, we forget, but he was hanging on the Venetian blinds and he broke the little the turny thing on the blind because he was trying to swing on it, which didn't work. And, and so I was scolding him and I said, I said, Jack, that was very naughty, you know. And he looked at me and said, he kind of looked up and he said, well, it's not naughty to me. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's the devil, my friends. <laughs> but seriously, isn't that the spirit of evil? It's not naughty to me. It's not sin to me. It's not true for me. 
I am the determiner of my own reality and morality in life. And whether that's done, you know, through being a literal Satan worshiper, you know, like we all go, oh, that's weird. Or whether it's just, just I'm doing my thing in my terms and no one tells me what to do. Satan's fine with either one. But there's coming a day where God is going to get all the glory and either He will get glory from us voluntarily through our praise or through our judgment. And so come to Jesus. He stands with open arms to receive anybody who will turn to Him. No matter who you are, even if you think the ceiling is going to crash down on you in a second, it hasn't. Because the arms of Christ are still open. There will be a ceiling crashing down day. But it's not today. Today's the day to turn to Him. Turn to Him before the great deception. Turn to Him before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You because You are the King, because You reign, because You're the victor, because You're the champion. Thank You that You have defeated our enemy and that someday You will forever put him on the stocks where he will no longer molest us. Thank you, Jesus, even more importantly, that you defeated our greatest enemy, which is ourselves. You've defeated our sin. You've wooed our hearts from Satan to yourself. You've put the Holy Spirit in us. Your, your blood has freed us from the chains of our own guilt and damnation. And so, Jesus, we praise you because you're not only our, our king, but you're our liberator. You're the one who's granted us amnesty. We love you, Jesus. And we just pray that we would go forward with confidence and hope in your victory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take your hymnals? Would you turn to hymn number 151? Hymn number 151. Please stand. We shall attempt to sing this a cappella. Good, Pierre's here. All right. We're going to sing this a cappella. And uh, if, if the, one, the one problem about singing this song a cappella is it can drag. So if you see me going like this, that means pick it up. Okay, this is a triumphant battle song. This is not a funeral dirge. This is, this is saints marching to war in triumph. So we need to have that kind of you know, brave heart sort of beat and fight to it, all right? So, let's sing this together. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not His Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. 
Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness grim, we tremble not for Him, His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. After the service, our prayer team is over here in the alcove. If you feel like you are in a wrestling match with the devil, would like some people to jump in the ring with you. These are some real wrestlers in the Lord. They love to wrestle with you in prayer, confidentially about anything that that's, you're struggling with in your life or someone you're concerned about. Uh, next Sunday, remember, 5 p.m. is our uh, groundbreaking ceremony for the church. And uh, just to get a sense how many people are going to be here for that, so our fellowship committee knows how much ice cream to bring. Um, <laughs> Just quick show of hands, just to kind of get like a visual. Okay, yeah, all right. So that's that's a lot of ice cream. Okay, um, great. So that'll be 5 o'clock next Sunday. Praise God for that. And uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your great name that you have placed upon us as your sons and daughters. Send us now, Lord, as fearless ambassadors of grace and mercy and the cross into this world this week. Lord Jesus, we each pray that you would give us at least one person this week with whom we could love with the love of Christ and with whom, to whom we could share the good news of Jesus. Lord, make us be alert. We know this person may come in an unsuspecting way. And so God, help us just to be on the lookout all the time for how we can share the love of Christ with the people around us and share the gospel message. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.